coming to this place, I hardly supposed we should find a more convenient spot in which to try our dexterity at horsemanship. Accordingly, I set out full tilt. The guard pursuing with much heroism, but seeing me gain ground every instant, they made a huge outcry for my halting. I turned a deaf ear, and before I was over the plain had run my tardy followers quite out of sight. I'm Abby Nemec, and this is A Time for Horses. Many people have sighed for the good old days and regretted the passing of the horse. But today, when only those who like horses own them, it is a far better time for horses. C.W. Anderson You're listening to a podcast about people and horses. Each episode, I take a look at a true story that connects somehow to horses, horse people, or the horse business. I'll tell you the story, sure, but I'm also going to tell you why I think it's a story worth telling. So, set the cruise control, pick up a pitchfork, step onto the treadmill, or pour another cup of coffee. I've got a story to tell you. Break it! In this episode of the show, I'm planning to wrap up and tie a lovely bow around year one of A Time for Horses. I've had great fun traveling through the various stories that we've shared over this first year. In recognition of this trip around the sun, I want to invite you to an anniversary party of sorts at the end of this particular episode. I'm going to give thanks to the team that helped me launch the show as well as those folks who've provided support during the year, including you, our listeners. So, stick around after the story for the party. In the meantime, let me introduce you to Episode 9, Vagabond. I've read a lot of memoirs over the years. Some of them are called autobiographies, which makes them sound a little more official, told in the first person more factual. I think memoirs is a better term, because it suggests the idea that how you remember the story and how you remember it to people is connected to the actual memories that you picked up along the way. Now, it sometimes happens, once someone publishes a memoir or an autobiography, that someone else will come along after the publication and attempt to discredit the story, because they were there, or they have some facts that disagree with the tale as it was originally told. However it happens, the person attempting to change the story is looking to line it up with their version of the facts. Sometimes the original storyteller is not in possession of all the details, and the person who comes along afterward actually has those details in hindsight, and they actually are making factual corrections to the story. But sometimes, it's really just that the second person has a different point of view on the events being told. If you're a regular listener to the show, I think you'll understand that in general, I try to make room for the fact that there are always going to be different versions of a story. And so, I make an effort to bring our understanding of things into alignment with the facts. Of course, I don't want to discredit the original storyteller, at least I try not to discredit the original storyteller, because the original story comes from the point of view of the author. 
And I think point of view is really important. You know, when my mother used to tell stories, which she did a lot, she was a great storyteller, I remember thinking sometimes, wow, that is so far from what really happened. Because I was there. I remembered it. And I'm sure that my children, when I tell stories, think the same exact thing. I have a good friend who's got a great story that involves an adventure of hers that I was involved in, sort of. She's been telling the story for many years, and I have been telling it for many years. And I realized recently that our two versions of the story have sort of diverged over time, to the point where they aren't really the same anymore. But it's okay, because there's a memory, and a point of view, attached to both versions of the story. And we both tell it with a bunch of interesting and compelling detail that may or may not be factual. So this story that I'm going to tell you comes with a point of view. It's based on an autobiography, and it involves a man who lived during the time of the American Revolution. He is a relative of mine, though a distant one, obviously, since we are separated by a good 200 years, but he's actually my third cousin, six generations removed. Our common ancestor, one Peter Tufts, immigrated to the colonies from England sometime in the early 1600s. We aren't quite sure the year, but he was a local leader and worked as a ferryman, and was the great-great-grandfather of the subject of our story. I know this from a family genealogy that was compiled in a two-volume edition called Tufts Kinsman, written by Herbert Freeman Adams, whose life's work was to assemble the history of one branch of the Tufts family in America. Ironically, Mr. Adams was related to the family only by marriage, but regardless, he was fascinated by its many stories, and we are grateful to him for his work. This distant relative of mine went by the name of Henry Tufts. He wasn't the only Henry Tufts, His father was Henry also. But in that time period, it was pretty common for people to name several people in the same family by the same name. If a child didn't live long enough to really embody a name or reach adulthood, and they thought it was a good name, they wouldn't let it go to waste and they'd reuse it for another child. For example, Peter Tufts, the one I mentioned a moment ago, had a child named John, who lived to the age of nine. During his life, they named their next son Jonathan. He lived a year. When Jonathan passed away, they named the next son Jonathan, and then named another son John after the death of the first John. In the end, they ended up with adults, one John and one Jonathan, both common names in the Tufts family. Other common male names were Peter, James, Joseph, Samuel, and Henry. Pretty much every family had one or two of each, as well as girls named Elizabeth, Mary, Sarah, Lydia, Rebecca, and Anne or Anna. Now, the Henry Tufts, whose story I'm about to share with you, was born in 1748 in the town of Newmarket, New Hampshire, and he lived most of his life within what today would be a few hours' car drive of that vicinity— in southern New Hampshire, Maine, and Vermont, as well as neighboring Massachusetts, Connecticut, 
and eastern New York. He spent most of his life on the road, primarily because if he stayed in one place too long, he was liable to find himself in trouble for what he refers to as crimes and misdemeanors. He was indeed infamous in his day, but not so much that he couldn't manage to stay one jump ahead of the law most of the time. In the book Tuft's Kinsman, where it would normally name a profession or a role in the community, his entry says, Vagabond, deserting soldier, American Revolution, Indian doctor. The life of Henry Tufts has been written about by a number of folks, but it all started with his own book, published in 1807, and recently published in the second complete edition as The Narrative of Henry Tufts, edited by Daniel Alley and available from Amazon. The original title was a narrative of the life, adventures, travels, and sufferings of Henry Tufts, now residing at Leamington in the District of Maine, in substance, as compiled from his own mouth. I guess they didn't really worry about making the title searchable in 1807. We might assume that the book was actually ghost-written by someone else, since the title says, as compiled from his own mouth, but I don't know that there is any other evidence of that besides the fact that it's pretty flowery writing, considering his lack of education. Between what we get from his book and investigation done by a number of modern researchers, the story of Henry Tufts's life is pretty detailed, so I'm only going to hit the highlights. You might find his language a bit hard to follow as it comes to us from 200 years ago, but I'll do my best with it. If you're interested in reading more, I've put information about the book as well as links to a few different blog posts about his story, and also the Tufts Kinsman organization in the show notes for this episode at atimeforhorses.com forward slash vagabond. In the preface, Henry begins his book by saying, quote, Since my life has been checkered with no small variety of adventures, and may for the greater portion of it be deemed extraordinary, I presume a short account of myself will not be unpleasing to the public. For a number of years past has the name of Henry Tufts, the author and hero of the following narrative, been famous, or rather infamous, through most of the United States. End quote. Henry Tufts's father, also Henry, was a tailor. He was trained in Boston, but lived in the towns of Newmarket and Lee, New Hampshire, where he and his wife, Mary, had four children and purchased a small farm. Our Henry was the firstborn, according to Tufts' kinsman, and he had nice things to say about his childhood. Quote, Happy, doubtless, I might have considered myself, had the whole term of my past existence been spent in equal innocency with the first fourteen years of it. For then, in all probability, I had never experienced those rugged trials or those bitter sufferings which have since checkered my unpleasant journey through life. When I was about the age just mentioned, the bent of my genius began to display itself, since at such an early stage I exhibited numerous indications of that natural propensity to theft, for which I was so distinguished in after periods that my name became proverbial. End quote. It started innocently enough with stealing fruits and vegetables from the neighbors. It seems it wasn't that long that 
While at the home of a neighbor, he was able to snatch a paper money note and make off with it. He was found out and had to return the note, and even became a pariah among his friends for such a terrible misdeed. Instead of turning straight as a result of this, though, he committed himself to figuring out how to avoid being caught. And so, Henry carried on, it seems, becoming a fairly capable petty thief. Quote, But now that the revolving wheel of time had rolled away twenty-one years of my existence, and admonished me that I was no longer subject to the mandates and authority of my parents, I began to think it high time to think of providing for myself. To this end I made applications to my father, desiring him to bestow on me some part of his property, as an encouragement to industry. End quote. However, it seems his father had no interest in splitting off a part of the farm for young Henry, leaving the young man to his own devices. Quote, I resolved, without more hesitation, to appropriate to my use some portion of his personal property, as a partial indemnification for the labor and toil I had expended in his service. It is written, as tis said in the Hebrew annals, that the man who gave his son neither property, education, nor trade brought him up to be a thief. The truth of this was verified in me, for after ruminating a while in order to concert the most eligible method in which to be even with my sire, I at last concluded to take his horse, that being the most convenient article of his domestic inventory and best suited to the dispatch that seemed needful in my novel undertaking. Accordingly, at a convenient season, under pretense of riding but a few miles, I made my flight with the horse to Chester, New Hampshire, where I sold him for about thirty dollars in ready money. End quote. And so it began. Henry did make some efforts to find and do legitimate work, but it seems that the one thing that came incredibly easy to him was always theft. He did marry a woman a few years older than himself by the name of Lydia Bickford, and she was, according to Herbert Adams, quote, a very notable and discreet woman, end quote, who provided most of the support for the family. They also lived in the town of Lee. At least she did with their children. As I said before, Henry was on the road a lot. According to Adams, quote, his shenanigans were so well known that he was labeled a hardened criminal by those he exploited, although he actually never did a serious criminal act in his life, but was accused of many he did not commit. Nearly a dozen times in a 15-year period, he was sentenced to prisons and dungeons and put in chains in Falmouth and York, Maine, Dover and Exeter, New Hampshire, and Newburyport, Ipswich, and Salem, Massachusetts. End quote. Henry was a notorious jailbreak. He tells of a story in which he and one of his cohorts, in an attempt to burn a hole in the wall of the town jail, burned the jailhouse down. It being Thanksgiving, they had to spend the holiday with the jailer and his family before being moved to another facility. Of course, this was the time of the American Revolution a time when every able-bodied man and woman was on one side or the other of the fight for freedom, right? Yeah, maybe not everyone. 
Henry signed up for the war, mostly because the pay was supposed to be good. Adams lays out his enlistments. Quote, During the Revolutionary War, he signed the Association Test of Loyalty, along with his father, and in 1775 enlisted in the company of Captain Clark for two months detailed to repair for the vicinity of Portsmouth, New Hampshire. He enlisted again for two months with Captain Dembo and was stationed on Winter Hill, Charlestown, now the town of Somerville, Massachusetts, during the Siege of Boston. His third enlistment with Captain True was at Salisbury, Massachusetts. It is said he served as far from home as Virginia. Some say that when a lull in the fighting occurred, he got bored and simply walked off, becoming a deserter. Evidence of it has not been found. End quote. Unless you call putting it in his autobiography evidence— In his book, he talks repeatedly of having to stay out of the way of the army, who were looking for him to clap him in irons. At one point, he spent three years or so living with the Native Americans in northern Maine, where he learned the traditional herbal doctoring methods of the Abenaki from their renowned healer, Molly Ockett. She taught him well, and of all the ways that Henry made a living over the rest of his life, it seems that working as a so-called Indian doctor— was the most legitimate and lucrative. This, however, he often alternated with the pretense of being a preacher. Quote, A set of religionists styled new lights, who pretended to far greater sanctity than their neighbors, had arisen of late. The enthusiastic meetings of those zealots I had frequently attended from motives of curiosity, and to their manner of praying and exhorting, had paid the minutest attention. As I was possessed of mimic powers and had a tenacious memory from my cradle, I was quickly in capacity to imitate their canting tone and to adopt the tenor of their discourses with precision. End quote. But to the point of our story, among his many professional caliber skills, Henry Tufts was an excellent horse thief. Here's one adventure describing the getaway after he and an acquaintance had burgled a store in Newmarket. Quote, As we intended to steer southwestwardly with the booty, we took, under cover of darkness, the highway leading through Stratham. I was mounted on a horse I had picked up a day or two before, but Smith, being destitute of such conveniency, we contrived to supply the defect by stealing a horse from one Barker, as we passed through the town last mentioned. Being now whole-footed, we pushed on full tilt till we gained Haverhill Ferry. End quote. And he didn't just horse-nap. He went to a lot of trouble to horse-nap. Quote, The science of deception, as my readers must suppose, had been ever my favorite study, and among other acquirements I had learnt to disguise a horse so artificially by various methods, most frequently by the help of different paints, that the owner, to have known his property again, must have had uncommon sagacity. A trick of this kind I put in practice on the present occasion, for, happening to meet one evening with a valuable horse belonging to one Johnson, I did not lose the propitious moment, but seized the prize, and rode him to a secluded place, where I so altered him, by painting his face white, spotting his feet and legs, and clipping his mane and tail, that he had altogether another appearance. 
The next day, I was overtaken on the road by Johnson himself, who, on missing the horse, had set out in quest of him and the thieves. He surveyed the nag repeatedly, but never recognized his property. We traveled in company several miles, and then parted without his entertaining the smallest suspicion of the deceit. The horse I kept but a day or two longer, for not daring to appear with him at Lee, I sold him for the money, and with it repaired thither. End quote. Sometimes it wasn't quite clear what the reason was for the things Henry did. Quote, but no long time elapsed before I chanced to fix my eye upon a likely young mare that belonged to my townsman, James Davis. This beast struck my fancy so forcibly that I coveted the conversion of her to my own use, though decidedly a transgression of the Tenth Commandment. Without loss of time, I laid a stratagem to steal and ride her away to Norwalk in Connecticut, that town being upwards of two hundred miles distant. All this I executed successfully, and there swapped her for a slightly horse, which I bestrode and trotted toward West Point. End quote. He was going there to visit his brother, Eliphalet. On the road, he met someone riding in a hurry, who asked to trade horses because his was tired. Quote, I demanded as much boot in cash as my own horse was reasonably worth, which he, having no other resource, was obliged to tell down. Elated at so lucky a windfall, I jogged on slowly, though in prime spirits, till I alighted at a tavern in the town of Woodbury, where I put up for the night. End quote. It turned out that after a night's rest, the horse was, quote, as good a nag as air legs crossed. End quote. It seems Henry had a way of starting with a stolen horse and ending up, after several cash transactions, with just as nice a horse. This story came back to Henry later, though. Quote, Meantime, James Davis, above mentioned, believing I had deprived him of his steed, made me a domiciliary visit and challenged me with the theft. As usual, I denied the fact, but on his promising most solemnly to take no advantage, if I would only declare the truth, I at last frankly confessed that I had ridden her to Norwalk in Connecticut, and there sold her. I further consented to accompany him, or his son, thither, in order to reimburse him, if practicable, by stealing the beast a second time. Agreeably to this, young Davis and myself commenced the expedition. We reached Norwalk in the course of a fortnight, timing matters so as to enter the town just in the edge of the evening. I conducted my partner, who was a mere novice in wickedness, to the stable, where I supposed the mare yet in keeping. He went in, with intent to lead her forth, but finding a dozen or more steeds, Tied together in the same stall, he was incapable, in the dark, of distinguishing his own from the others. In this dilemma, I offered, in turn, to make trial of my skill in obviating the difficulty. So, entering the stable, I led out a beast, and told Davis it was his own. He was incredulous, but upon my avouching her identity, we both mounted and rode a few miles, when finding a horse saddled and bridled by the wayside, I stripped him of his trappings." and tried them upon ours merely to see if they would fit, which finding to be particularly the case, I suffered them to remain, and remounting with my associate, pushed on with much rapidity. 
We rode upwards of thirty miles before the appearance of the morning dawn, but no sooner did objects become visible than Davis, much to his comfort, found himself, in fact, on the back of his own mare. Strange as it may seem, I distinguished her from the other horses in the stable by the manner of her chewing hay. End quote. You never knew when Henry stole a horse just to have a horse, or if there was more behind it. Quote, I came to the hasty conclusion of stealing the Longfellow mare, the property of Ephraim Clough. I had entertained an opinion for some time that this chap had jockeyed me out of a suit of clothes and a barrel of rum, which articles I could never prevail with him to refund. On those accounts, I owned him an old grudge, and having no other way to be even with him, determined on making reprisals in the manner above mentioned. End quote. But then again, that one caught up with him too. Quote, I made the best of my way to Canterbury, and there stayed about a week, when news arrived that I was a deserter from the army, and had moreover stolen Clough's mare. Thus, I left Canterbury, but not daring to keep the road, was forced to abandon the mare, which was taken up and sent home to the owner. End quote. He kept that horse a week. Not every horse that Henry nabbed lasted so long, but most of them at least saved him some walking. Quote, As I passed through Kennybunk, one of my quondam associates delivered me a bundle of clothes to carry a mile or two and deposit at a certain house. Very innocently, I undertook the trust, but had discharged the freight scarcely a second when I perceived a group of people coming with hue and cry in quest of the thief. The goods had been stolen, it seems, the very day I received them, and the owner, by some means or other, had gotten upon the right tract. As I was particularly wishful of avoiding entanglements at this ill-boding conjuncture, I slipped out of doors, took advantage of leg bail, and sped to the deep coverts, eluding by which means those industrious thief-takers. Quite disgusted with wandering thus on foot, I contrived to appropriate a horse which I rode a number of miles under the screen of darkness, but on the approach of daylight thought it most advisable to secrete him in the bushes till the advent of the next evening should again favor my retreat. At a good distance from the road I found a station, in which it was presumable I might pass the day unmolested. I had also reclined at my ease upon a hillock, and was preparing to take a nap, when suddenly I was startled at the sight of a man running toward me with much velocity. Unable to hide, unwilling to flee, I sprang on end and threw myself into a posture of defense, but it turned out in the sequel that he was only in pursuit of a runaway cow. This was better than the expectation, yet as the man had seen me with the horse, I thought my greater safety would be in flight, so quitting all I sped off with the greatest swiftness. What became of the horse I never knew, yet have little doubt of his being recovered by the legal owner. End quote. Henry often had help with his adventures, and while I found it a challenge to figure out sometimes why he would travel to some of the places he went, I'm guessing it was as much that if one sat still too long, one was more likely to be found out. Of course, sometimes one would be found out anyway. Quote, I casually contracted some little acquaintance with one Ebenezer Hubbard, a straggling adventurer whom I perceived to be a bird of my own feather. 
Hubbard and I agreed to commence a career of larceny in concert and to share the profits jointly. Our first essay commenced at Durham, where we eased George Frost of the trouble of a horse, and when passing through a part of Vermont, disposed of him to one Daniel Eldridge of Pownall. Frost, gathering some information of this circumstance, went to Vermont and persuaded Eldridge to surrender the property. However, I was detained by the latter to respond damages, and rather than controvert the affair, I engaged to pay thirty dollars and a yoke of oxen as the means of avoiding worse consequences. End quote. Where on earth he came up with a yoke of oxen to pay the fine, it doesn't say. I'd like to add here that Durham is out close to the seacoast in southern New Hampshire, and Pownall is about 150 miles west by today's most direct route, near the borders of Vermont, New York, and Massachusetts. Odds are good, it was more than a week's ride, most particularly for the horse's owner, who had to travel in search of the horse, collect his damages, and then return to the coast. Do you suppose he took the horse he rode out on, the stolen horse, and the yoke of oxen, the 150 miles back home? Now, that would be a long haul. Every so often, Henry would find himself back home at Lee with his wife and children. There were six of them, according to Herb Adams, so I'm guessing he must have spent at least some time at home. Quote, At home, however, I was no better than a nuisance, since, fearful of being seen, I could earn nothing. I therefore took an opportunity to obtain, without saying by your leave, a complete mare from the enclosure of a neighbor, who must be nameless. I rode but a few furlongs before meeting with a man of my acquaintance, whom, though the night was gloomy, I recognized, but, as he had not the slightest knowledge of me, I jogged securely on, intending to reach number four. He means Fort Number 4 at Charlestown, New Hampshire. On the way thither, a suitable chance occurred of turning the mare for cash, which I seized, and then proceeded on foot. End quote. Of course, after this sale, the contents of his full purse put Henry into great danger when the keeper of the inn where he stayed, along with his wife, conspired to attack Henry for his money and, if you believe the tale, he barely escaped with his life. Henry Tufts did not restrict his animal theft to horses only, though. In this next adventure, he talks about traveling in a short time from Number 4 to Nottingham, then Hampton Falls, New Hampshire, which is, again, a good 150 miles back in the other direction across the state. Quote, Having passed through number four, I wheeled to the right about, came in a short time to Nottingham, and soon arrived at Hampton Falls. Here I wheeled away a large dog and sold him near Newbury, that's in Massachusetts, for ten shillings, but had crossed the ferry scarce twenty minutes when the dog returned to me by swimming. I ventured into a house in Newburyport and sold him a second time for six shillings good money. Then, taking the road to Bradford, also in Massachusetts, I went on about two minutes when my faithful dog again overtook me. At Bradford, I parted with him a third and last time for about one dollar more, so that, on the whole, my trusty dog turned to a pretty good account. End quote. I was talking before 
about the question of whether Tufts would have considered himself a patriot at this time, and it sounds as though his allegiance fell on whichever side he could extract money from. He tells a story about being approached by a stranger at a tavern, with a question about the possibility of passing some counterfeit money. The man claimed to be an agent for the British and offered Henry an opportunity to spend imitation bills. The goal was one of espionage. Quote, As Congress had issued a paper medium to raise armies and paid off their troops, it imported their adversaries to discredit the currency as effectually as possible. And as such large quantities of paper had been emitted already, the speediest way to effect the entire dissolution of that system was to inundate the country with counterfeit bills. I thanked him for his liberality, and confessed I should be glad of a small quantity which I had no scruple of putting off. I found not the slightest difficulty in passing them. End quote. Of course, one of the first things he did with the counterfeit funds... He bought himself a good horse. Make no mistake about it. Henry Tufts was a professional thief. He stashed a collection of keys, files, knives, and other tools about the countryside with his friends and cohorts, and his many escapes from jail were often made by use of these implements. He also kept a collection of paints on hand to help with his horse thievery. Quote, I now kept on hand, or in suitable places of deposit, a variety of paints of different colors, by means of which I could so alter the looks of any horse that the owner must be puzzled to know him again, while the disguise lasted, which was usually a week or more unless the paint were sooner displaced by hard riding or rainy weather. I also kept on hand several sets of cork shoes covered with sole leather. These I used frequently to fasten round my horse's feet, to prevent the sound of his footsteps being heard. I have often surprised people, for favorite purposes, by this contrivance. End quote. In one instance, it seemed that he benefited when someone recognized a stolen horse. As he stole a mare from Simsbury, Connecticut, managed to ship her across the Connecticut River at Springfield, Massachusetts, on a stolen scow, and then, when he was seen by sentries and the mare was recognized, the sentries decided to let him go by, since the mare was known for having such a terrible temperament. On another adventure, back in cahoots with his old confederate Ebenezer Hubbard, the two men stole some horses, and then, in no time at all, were tracked down by their owner— with a sheriff, who seized the men and took them into custody. Quote, On consultation, it was deemed advisable to carry us back to number four, but when ready to embark, a trifling altercation took place respecting the horses. Finally, it was judged unsafe that I should be trusted with the horse I had stolen. I must mount, therefore, another, their late purchase." this important business adjusted, we began the procession, myself and Hubbard in the center, but had gone very few furlongs ere I imagined that the horse assigned to my share was decidedly the fleetest in the whole troop. Having handled so many, I thought myself a competent judge, therefore intended at all hazards to outride my keepers. A few miles short of number four was a level plain, four miles across, 
coming to this place, I hardly supposed we should find a more convenient spot in which to try our dexterity at horsemanship. Accordingly, I set out full tilt. The guard pursuing with much heroism, but seeing me gain ground every instant, they made a huge outcry for my halting. I turned a deaf ear, and before I was over the plain had run my tardy followers quite out of sight. This achieved... I wheeled behind a sconce of bushes, aloof from the road, and not sooner had the troopers shot by than I gave once more full reins to my steed and thus got off, with flying colors, to Pepperell in Massachusetts. Here I turned my horse to good account and with the avails repaired to Lee, in which place, in spite of the numerous perils and indignities I had suffered there, I still felt a powerful attachment. End quote. In the end, the whole of his career taken together, it's pretty clear that Henry Tufts never did commit a violent or serious crime, and from today's point of view, one could easily imagine him as the hero of a Netflix series about a sympathetic criminal, maybe starring Leonardo DiCaprio or Matt Damon. At the end of his misspent career, Tufts did finally return to Lee, only to find that his wife and children had up and moved to Lymington, Maine, and his sons had found good, profitable work there. He traveled to Lymington to meet them. Herbert Adams tells the account of his senior years. Quote, in these later years, after he had rejoined Lydia, he lived in a small shed by the side of the road, just above Edgecombe's Bridge, near the Limerick-Lymington town line, which, in more recent years, was used as a garage. The town of Limerick compensated him for doctoring their poor. He and his wife, who had lived separately in 1790, being listed at different abodes, by 1820 through 1830 are found living together in Limington. End quote. Finally, it is said that the notorious Henry Tufts died at Limington, Maine on January 31st, 1831, in his 83rd year. Reading this story in the modern day, from a world in which we lock everything by clicking a fob or tapping an app in our phones, the story reads as an amusing portrayal of the naivety of the people of the 18th century. But I gotta say that even I, up until not so many years ago, left house and car unlocked because I had no expectation that they would come to harm. Sadly, that's no longer true. Imagine living in a time when the worst thing you could be was a burglar, because everything was insecure and society depended upon being able to trust your neighbors. The burglar violated the trust of the entire community. I looked up some information about the consequences for theft and burglary in the early American colonies, and let me just say that the penalty for burglary was, pretty universally, death. In fact, Tufts was tried in a burglary case and convicted in 1793, although he claims in the book that he had actually bought the stolen property that was in his possession. Might be true. After all, he hung around with that sort of company. The prison in which he was held for the conviction was the castle, situated well out in Boston Harbor, and his talent for jailbreaking was no good to him there. 
He was actually sentenced to hang, but the sentence was, at the last minute, commuted to life in prison by Governor Samuel Adams. When ownership of the castle was transferred to the U.S. government in 1798, the prisoners were moved to facilities on shore. And Tufts was more or less invited to leave by the keeper of the Salem jail, who seemed to want nothing to do with him. This adventure takes up a good portion of the book, and it's one of the more entertaining parts of his story. On the show notes page for this episode, I've posted links to a range of resources that might interest you, since you've made it this far. We've linked to information about criminal penalties, the different editions of Henry's book, as well as a New England Historical Society piece on his love life, which I didn't even touch on in this story. Henry Tufts was an incorrigible ladies' man and Lydia Bickford was only the first of his many loves. He was clearly a fellow without a whole lot of impulse control. Now, the main character of this story was certainly renowned in his day as a horse thief, among other things. But it seems he really got out of that line of work just about in the nick of time, because it was at the beginning of the 19th century that a tradition similar to our neighborhood watch groups began to develop across the U.S., These anti-horse theft associations grew large memberships of vigilantes who would aggressively pursue horse thieves and, in some cases, hang them with no trial. One of these groups was founded right in the middle of Henry's old stomping grounds in the town of Dedham, Massachusetts. Founded in 1810, the group is called the Society in Dedham for Apprehending Horse Thieves, and as of today, it is recognized as the oldest continually existing horse thief apprehending organization in the country. And, according to the association's website, it is one of the most venerable social organizations in the town of Dedham. Quote, Since 1810, The Society has enrolled nearly 10,000 members worldwide, although the actual number of living members is problematical, since many of those who have died have also failed to remove themselves from the rolls. Members have included popes, most of the recent presidents of the United States, except Jimmy Carter, who seems to have excited little interest, and General George Armstrong Custer, a posthumous selection. Raquel Welch was a spontaneous nomination, but was ignominiously blackballed. For a one-time $10 fee, anyone may enroll him or herself or a friend for a lifetime membership and create an affiliation with an historic organization and the ancient town of Dedham. End quote. This not-for-profit organization holds the oldest active bank account at Dedham Savings Bank, and it may be the oldest active banking account in America. They continue to meet every year on the first Tuesday in December, just in case. If you go to the show notes, you will also find a link to the website of the Society in Dedham for Apprehending Horse Thieves, as well as to the Henry Tufts website and its connections to a variety of resources on our man. The host of that site, Daniel Alley, discovered the original text of the narrative of Henry Tufts when he was in college and made it his mission to publish a modern copy of the full text, with no bits removed and no corrections to the spelling or writing. You can purchase the book right through his website, where he tells the story of its publication. Quote, 
I discovered Tufts's narrative while a senior in college, at which point I was working on a project, researching and then presenting strange and obscure old books held in the university archives. I happened upon the original and was amazed at what I was reading. This was a book like no other an early American narrative that did not overly moralize and did not shy away from presenting the very worst of actions. End quote. As we bring this story to a close, let me end with a few thoughts from the man himself, in which he explains why he decided to write his autobiography, though one must imagine that at least part of the reason was to provide himself some sort of income from book sales in his dotage. Quote, Should any of the rising generation, by a perusal of my story, learn to avoid those quicksands of vice on which I have been so often wrecked, I shall feel myself amply compensated for the trouble I have taken in its compilation. The wages of sin is death. The wages of a vicious, dissolute life is punishment." That punishment, if not inflicted by the ministers of the law, is still our certain doom, by the invisible hand of inexorable justice. In respect to such as have injured me, I heartily forgive them, as I hope the supreme arbiter of events and judge of all things will vouchsafe to forgive me. I wish not to harbor resentment, and am determined to carry rancor against no one. In my bosom, to the grave. I hope, too, that others will overlook the injuries they have sustained in the loss of property or otherwise through my means. Inasmuch as I lament sincerely my injustice toward them, resolving carefully to shun similar aggressions for the future. Heaven grant I may do no more wickedly. End quote. Thanks for riding out the story of this notorious vagabond. I hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back in a few weeks with the first story of our second year. I haven't decided yet which story I'm going to tell next time, but I can tell you that in year two, I'm looking at an adventure story from South America, a few more war stories from World War I, World War II, and the Crimean War, and possibly a Depression-era story about women and horses and books. We'll have to see what bubbles up to the top. This story was researched and produced by me, Abby Nemec. The show notes were written by Christian Gunderman, and you can find them at atimeforhorses.com forward slash vagabond. Now, I promised you a bit of an anniversary celebration, wrapping up our first year of A Time for Horses. You know, I told my friends when I started the podcast that I was going to do this for a year, and if I was still having fun doing it at the end of the year, I'd keep going. So, it seems to be that I'm still having fun. I've had the opportunity to research five great stories about the subject that fascinates me, horses and I'm getting feedback that suggests that you have enjoyed the results. 
Since you're listening, I'm guessing that's true. At least I hope it's not because your podcast player is stuck on play and your hands are wet so you can't turn it off. We host the show on the media host service called Blueberry, and they provide me with some running tallies of where and how people are listening to the show. The odds are good that you are listening in the United States, but you may also be in one of the 30 other countries that listens to the show. Japan, the UK, and Canada are the top three non-American countries, but we do have folks across Europe, Australia, and New Zealand, and a handful of listeners in other parts of Asia. In the U.S., we have listeners in 41 states, plus the District of Columbia, including, of course, a handful of states with only a couple of listens. You never know when you have a single download in a place. If it's the case that they didn't like the show, didn't listen to it, or if they were only listening for a specific reason. Regardless, Blueberry counts them, and I'm happy to include you all as members of our audience. Most of you play the show on a Windows system and listen through a web browser. That's actually unusual for a podcast, and it suggests that you might be new at this, and you may not listen to a lot of other shows. Well, I hope you'll expand your listening habits, though. If you have a smartphone, you can turn on a podcast, pop it in your pocket like I do, and listen on the move. I listen to podcasts while I'm cleaning my paddock, mowing the lawn, raking leaves, cooking, sewing, or driving in my car. I have friends who play podcasts in the car for their kids to listen to. A Time of Horses may not be the best show for that, but there are a number of shows out there that are designed for children of various ages. So you should check them out. If you have an Apple device, you have a podcast app. It's called the Apple Podcast app pre-installed as a part of your operating system. You can visit learntosubscribe.com for information about how to subscribe to our show or to anyone else's. If you have an Android device, check out subscribeonandroid.com for suggestions about ways to search out and download and subscribe to your new favorite shows. You can download them on Wi-Fi and play them later, so it doesn't have to affect your data plan use. Although, audio files use quite a bit less data than video files and images anyway, so it's not too much of a burden on your plan or your device. When I first started work on this show, I told a few friends and family members what I was planning to do. You know how it is. If you tell other people what you're planning, you're more likely to actually make it happen. So that's what I did. One of the people I told early on was one of my college roommates, Mary. She thought it was a great idea and asked me if I had bought a microphone yet. I hadn't, so she gave me a nice one that she had left over from a project she'd worked on. I recorded most of the first year's episodes on that mic, and it was a really key contribution to the project at a time when it would have been easy to abandon. I started working on my first episode, Watermark, and sent it around to be reviewed by a number of family and friends. I also preyed upon these folks as I moved on to work on the three-part story about Staff Sergeant Reckless. They gave their Dropbox accounts a workout and sent me all sorts of useful feedback, in particular, letting me know that the volume wasn't right, the music mix was messed up, the music needed to be replaced, and more. 
among the people who took a hard listen to multiple versions of multiple episodes, and I have to tell you, it's no fun to listen to multiple versions of the same content, so I'm really grateful to these people. That content review team was made up of my sister, Pat Nemec, my son, Ricky Bloxham, and his wife, Allie, and my daughter, Anna Bloxham, my friends, Beth and Amanda, as well as another of my college roommates, Brian Hotaling. He stuck it out through a bunch of different types of revisions over a period of months and contributed all the way down to The Wire when he recorded for me the C.W. Anderson quote that you hear in the title intro. In the end, I am not stretching in any way to say that without the generous support of this wonderful team of content reviewers, the show, if it got off the ground at all, would not have been very good. Our beautiful website was designed and built by my talented and capable son, Ricky Bloxham. If you like the work he's done on atimeforhorses.com, you should check out his catalog of work at rbloxham.com and see his award-winning graphic design projects. The site itself required some special coding tweaks in order to make it just so, and Rick reached out to his friend Chris Heinen of heinencreative.com, who dropped the necessary bits in to do the job. I've put a link to both of their websites in the show notes for this episode as well, and you find those, of course, at atimeforhorses.com forward slash vagabond. You may not know that when you build a website, one of the things that needs done is for someone to go through every nook and cranny of the site and make sure that all of the pages load and look right, all the links and forms work, and all the information is visible on as many different browsers and platforms as possible. For a time for horses, that work was done by my good friend Beth. I knew she was working on it when I'd suddenly start getting test emails from our contact form, one after another. Beth is actually an ongoing contributor, too, as she listens to every episode and sends me notes if she finds quirky things. It's great to know I have a designated quality control editor out there among my listeners. As I got right down to the last few steps, I reached out to a podcast coach to make sure that I had the site ready, to upload the first episode to the media host, and to walk me through requesting the listing on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can find links to all of these directories on our subscribe page at atimeforhorses.com forward slash subscribe. The person who helped me is one of the leading teachers for people looking to start podcasting. You might even call him a guru. In any case, I really appreciate the leadership of Dave Jackson from the School of Podcasting. His is one of several shows on podcasting that I subscribe to, and his point of view is one that carries a lot of weight for me. Finally, I want to give a great bundle of appreciation to one of my closest teammates in the production of atimeforhorses.com, and that is my dear friend, Christian Gunderman, who writes the show notes for each episode. Sometimes it takes a collaborative effort between the two of us, since we are both on an academic calendar and we're subject to the same crunch times. But by the time I finish recording and editing an episode, I am so deep into the content that it really makes it tough for me to back up far enough to get my head around the show notes. If you haven't read them, you should really check them out. There's a lot of interesting thinking going on down there on the episode pages at the website, 
as well as some beautiful pictures that I spent a long time picking out. So, pop over and visit. These folks have been super helpful to me in producing the show, but I also really want to share with you some of the wonderful feedback that I've gotten from you, the show's actual listeners, because I'm not going to deny it. I really like the fact that there are so many people in so many different places who are enjoying the show. One of the first comments on the show came from Ricky's friend, Dave, who posted on Facebook almost a year ago, quote, guys, seriously, Ricky's mom started a podcast and it's legit real good. The rapper is horses, but it's about history, battles, all kinds of stuff. It just helped me clean my apartment. Check it out. End quote. That one made me laugh. If I can help Dave or anyone clean their apartment, it's a good day. My friend Andy gave me a call after listening to the first story, the three-part one about Staff Sergeant Reckless, and told me he really liked the personal aspects of the story. I told him I thought he could count on hearing more of that in coming stories. Some folks I've spoken to in person were pretty clear that they think I spend a little too much time in the weeds of the stories, but other people seem to feel that's more a feature than a bug. One listener told me she loved the Secretariat story for sure, but when it got to the begats, I sort of lost her for a little while. I think you'll find that some stories lend themselves to that more than others and need more explanation. One of my goals with the show is to make it possible for people to appreciate it, even if they aren't what we call horse people. Because the stories are great, whether you have the background knowledge or not, and if you don't have that knowledge, I want to provide it for you. Also, of course, there are some instances where the common knowledge about something doesn't quite add up for me, and based on my knowledge or experience, I want to throw some additional information in there, in the interest of education. If that's the weeds, I guess I'll just apologize and ask you to put up with it. I'll try to keep it from taking over. Lemonia Fotinos was away on a reserve weekend with the U.S. Army when she posted, quote, There is always a time for horses, even while away and in uniform. I can listen in to a podcast, A Time for Horses by Abigail Nemec, end quote. I'm really grateful to Lemonia, first for her service and that of her brothers and sisters in arms, and also for taking a few minutes out of her well-earned downtime to support the show. I ran into Janet Barrett, author of They Called Her Reckless, at the recent Equine Affair Expo in Massachusetts, and she stopped by the booth that I was working in to let me know that she really enjoys the podcast. We had a great two-minute chat, and it was definitely a treat to catch up with her before she zipped back off to the bookseller's booth to sign some more of her books. I felt really honored that she is a listener, too. From the Apple Podcast Reviews, I have a few more very kind comments I'd love to share with you as well. Humperdinck, Humperdinck, Humperdinck posted with a five-star review from the USA to say, quote, I love a good story, and this podcast spins a great one about the wonder of horses. I am not a horse person, and initially listened to the first episode just to give it a go. Wonder is really the best word to describe how the podcast tells stories of how these animals impact our lives and make our lives better. 
the podcaster is quite engaging with a good storyteller's voice. I highly recommend you give it a go. End quote. Thanks so much, Humperdinck, for your thoughtful words. I do absolutely appreciate them. Spectrastar, also from the USA, also gave us a five-star review to say, quote, Abby does such excellent research and covers all avenues for learning in each story, not only focus on a time for horses, but a full history of a place and its surroundings. Fall into another time with this podcast. End quote. Again, another thoughtful comment. That one really touched me, since it's always one of my goals to bring you, the listener, into the moment where the story is taking place. Thanks to Spectrastar for your kind words. If you want me to share your thoughts on the show, I would love to have the chance to do that. Please take a couple of minutes to pop in through the app you're using to listen or click in through our website and share a little love for our show out there in the directories. It's super easy. You can just tap through your app. Pretty much all of the major podcatchers and directories allow you to navigate in and give us your thoughts with a rating and a review. If you feel a little bit squeamish about making some sort of comment about the show itself, how about instead of writing what you like about the show, you just tell us where you are when you're listening. That's all. You don't need to say any kind of great things about the show itself unless you want to. Just where you listen. We got another five-star review from Stefan Willow from the USA, who posted, quote, Absolutely well put together. Horses have been, and still are, my life. Listening to another horse lover share these remarkable stories and history lessons that I can learn and relate to is phenomenal. My daughter Willow loves listening to them every time. When one episode is done, we are excitingly on the edge of our saddle, waiting for the next one. Thank you, Abby. End quote. Well, thank you, Stefan Willow, for listening. And you're welcome. I'm glad to hear that you are training up the next generation of podcast listeners, as well as another generation of horse lovers. Keep up the good work. Now, if leaving reviews is not the way you roll, there's a contact form on the website or you can send an email to feedback at a timeforhorses.com. If you're more of the talking sort, you can leave a voicemail at 1-302-STORY-ME. That's 1-302-786-7963. Finally, if you just want to comment on the fly, feel free to tag us on Facebook at A Time for Horses or Twitter at ATFH Podcast or Use the hashtag, A Time for Horses, wherever you are. We also got a five-star review from Apple Podcasts, shared by Joe Dev Rock from the UK, and it's another really nice one, saying, quote, Abby does a brilliant job of spinning each yarn, and I could listen to her voice all day. Her level of detail is amazing, and I've thoroughly enjoyed them all. Hand clapping emoji, thumbs up emoji, and... Red heart emoji, end quote. Wow, now that's love, Joe Devrock. I think I need to send thank you hands emoji and hug emoji right back to you. Also from the UK, we got five stars from Shalfari, who said, quote, fab, fab, and fab, even for non-horsey peeps. If you want to lose yourself in a damn good story, then a time for horses is the place. 
I adore horses and have a hubby who long-sufferingly puts up with me, yabbering on constantly to him and friends about everything equine. However, a mark of how fab this podcast is, is that hubby has listened to a number of episodes of and wanted more. Wow, good job, and keep up the fabness. Thanks so much, Shelfari, and thanks to the hubby. Finally, we got two 11th hour shares on social media right as this episode was hitting the microphone. Forge Plus, a great nutritional consulting business in Flintshire in Great Britain, shared a link to the website saying, quote, the most fantastic people and hashtag horses podcast set the cruise control, step on the treadmill, pick up the pitchfork or pour another cup of coffee. Abby Nemec has a story to tell you. Enjoy everyone. Even if you aren't a hashtag horse nut, you will totally fall in love with the way Abby tells her stories about people and horses. Can't wait for the next episode, Abby, at atimeforhorses.com, end quote. And how nice of Forage Plus to have tweeted about us as well. And the last nice comment we got came from Lisa, who shared a link to the story about Secretariat, Lightning in a Bottle, on Facebook, where she said, quote, Take a listen, friends. Perhaps an hour spent better than scrolling through your smartphones. I'm headed out to spend some time with the horses, with a more profound understanding of how they and we came to be here. End quote. And one last time, I want to say how humbled I am that these stories really mean something to you, Lisa, and everybody. All of these responses fulfill my fondest wish for this show, that I can share the magic of horses with people who might not otherwise appreciate it, that I can bring new insights to people who are already hooked, and that I can provide a worthwhile bit of entertainment for those times when your hands or your feet are busy and your mind wants to go for a little explore. Thank you, each of you, for helping me keep this show going. Until next time, please reach out and help us spread the word about the show by hopping over to your podcast directory and telling us where you listen, or else visiting atimeforhorses.com forward slash contact. And as always, you know the thing that makes a good podcast great? More listeners. So if you don't tell us, tell someone else, the old-fashioned way, that you are enjoying our show. That's how we continue to grow, after all. And thanks for that. If you're listening to our show on the web, you may already know that our website is atimeforhorses.com, and you'll find the notes for this episode at atimeforhorses.com forward slash vagabond. If you're new to the concept of listening to a podcast, I'm really glad to hear it. You know, you can subscribe to the show for free and never miss an episode. Just go to atimeforhorses.com forward slash subscribe for links to the various places where you can find us. And thanks for giving me your ear space. I'll see you next time.